Hello again, and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to do something a little unusual, as we're coming up towards Christmas, and you know, you find yourself wanting to relax in an armchair and do the crossword, or maybe something a bit more challenging. And I have with me this week Alex Bellos, who is a writer of several wonderful popularising books on mathematics, who's now produced something a lot more challenging than a crossword, and it's called Can You Solve My Problems? It's it's an anthology of ingenious, perplexing and totally satisfying puzzles, most of which I confess I can't do at all. And what we're going to do is start by seeing whether you can improve on my record. Alex is going to pose one of the problems in his book, and then we'll talk a bit about his book. And at the end of the podcast, he'll give you the answer. And you can see whether you've got it. So, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Because puzzles need to be phrased very precisely, rather than this remembering, I'm just going to read the puzzle as it's phrased in the book. So it's, it's a lovely puzzle, and it's from the 19th century, actually, um, invented by the mathematician, French mathematician, Edouard Luca, who lots of people call him Lucas, but it's actually Luca. That's one way you can tell the mathematicians from the non-mathematicians. And this is the question. Every day at noon in Le Havre, an ocean liner sails to New York, and simultaneously, in New York, an ocean liner sails to Havre. The crossing each way takes exactly seven days and seven nights. How many other ocean liners will an ocean liner leaving Havre today pass at sea by the time it arrives in New York? Well, I'm going to chance my arm and say seven. Are we giving the answers now or are we waiting till the end? Well, <laughs> we'll wait till the end. <laughs> but... I thought I might as well get my bid in first. Now, Alex, the first thing I, would, I suppose I'd ask is, well, how did you start on this collection of, I mean, enormous, monstrous collection of puzzles? Yeah, so I have written lots of popular maths books, and I have quite a well-read blog on maths. And last year... When I wake up in the morning, lots of people get news stories from all, you know, politics and culture. I get loads of math stories. And I saw this one story which was coming from Singapore, from a little small kind of blog in Singapore, with an interesting puzzle that said it was for primary school Singaporean kids. And, you know, the reputation of Singapore is that they're kind of number one in all the international comparison league tables. Uh, they have a special thing called Singapore Maths, which... Everyone is adopting all around the world. And I thought, oh, my God, they must be so brilliant if a primary school pupil can do this puzzle. It's the Cheryl's birthday or the Cheryl's birthday problem. So I put it on my math blog just saying, you know, are you smarter than a Singaporean seven-year-old or eight-year-old, whatever it was, and thought nothing of it. By the end of the day, more than a million people had clicked and were answering and had viewed my puzzle. It was the most popular story, not only on... British newspapers on the Guardian website, on the Telegraph website, on the New York Times website, on the BBC website. It kind of went completely viral. And that got me thinking, well, lots of things go viral. Pictures of cats go viral. But there's something about a puzzle which goes viral. And it can go you know, as virulent as the cutest cat. And I thought, well, you normally associate puzzles with being kind of difficult and not nice and kind of challenge and, you know, okay, satisfying once you've done it, but quite painful until you get there. And so it, that started off a journey for me just becoming more and more fascinating, fascinated with puzzles. And that led to the book. And, you know, I read a huge amount of puzzle literature. And also with great puzzles is that once you've written this great puzzle or devised it, 
it doesn't really kind of go out of fashion. It kind of stays there. You might kind of improve it or like change the, the, the name of the person in it. So what you have when you're looking at the history of puzzles or when you're looking at puzzles is you're looking at almost 2,000 years of fantastic inventiveness of mathematicians, puzzle devisers. And I thought, I want to put this in a book. And when you say, how do you go about starting to place them because they're all sort of so different, I thought I would try and tell sort of the history of the puzzle through choice selection of my puzzles. I had to divide them into different areas. So I've got one on logic puzzles, one on geometry puzzles, one okay practical puzzles, one on kind of number puzzles, and one on puzzles with props, so with, with stuff you actually need to use your hands and within that I try and tell a kind of roughly chronological story of the first puzzles in that area right up to kind of brand new puzzles such as the Cheryl one. And is there an existing kind of oldest puzzle in the world? I mean is a sort of ancient Sumerian tablet with a you know Sudoku on it? Well there are extremely old things that you could call recreational mathematics which are Math problems that appear on kind of cuneiform tablets and you know, Babylonian or Egyptian parchments, which can have had no other purpose than to have a bit of fun. There's one that has seven, I think, sacks of something, and each sack has seven cats. It's a bit like the St. Ives puzzle. And you're just given this mathematical sum, which is seven, whatever, what, what, uh, piles, I think, then seven squared plus seven to the cube. 7 cubed, then 7 to the 4, plus 7 to the 5. And most people think that that is just a bit of fun. You also have lots of ancient riddles, but they're not really mathematical ones. I think the first famous ancient riddle is, what is it that crawls in the morning? No, that has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three in the evening. And I think that is man, because you're a child, then a adult. A trib the sphinx. Yes, well, that's pretty old. Yeah, yeah. So are. that's Egypt, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I um, mean, I think the things that are attributed that whichever ancient civilization it was, it was doing the rand, so to speak. In my book, I'm specifically interested in mathematical or logical puzzles, puzzles that you can actually solve if you actually if you put your mind to it. There are ways of solving them. Now, you you've used the phrase recreational mathematics, yeah. and it's not it's a phrase that would have sounded a bit like an oxymoron to the teenage me, and I'm sure a lot of people who are struggling with maths at GCSEA level. Is there a sort of some, something special about a particular type of maths that makes it fun? Or is this, I mean, is, is the sort of puzzle-solving instinct actually homologous with the what makes mathematicians do what they do? It is so impossible to try and draw the line between what is fun maths and what is serious maths, partly because so much fun maths has been studied which is then turned into serious maths. I mean, the history of puzzles is a history of the genesis of lots of ideas that have gone on to change the world. So, for example, probability, therefore, all of you know the insurance industry statistics, that comes from people playing around with dice games and gambling games. So that's a kind of a fun thing that you want to try and find out. Likewise, I think that I was good at maths at school, and people used to always say, oh, well, you've got the math subjects, but why don't you try a creative subject? I like, never understood that because math to me was always the most creative and playful subject because you have these abstract ideas and it's all about just having fun with them and the patterns that they reveal and the surprises that lie within them. And just just going back, because I had quite finished 
in terms of the history, the oldest puzzle in this book is from about one and a half thousand years ago. And it's, it comes from, from China, although it was spread from China. And you probably will have heard them. And the first time I ever heard this puzzle was when someone sent me an email saying, I heard this puzzle the other day and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And no one in my village could do it as a guy from Pakistan. And it's um, what are called 100 bird problems. And I will read you the, the, the one... They are of the form, if a cock costs five pieces, a hen four pieces, and a chick a quarter of a piece, how many cocks, hens and chicks can be bought with 100 pieces to make 100 of them? And this has appeared, this idea, if you're buying three things, or three different prices, and you have 100 units, and you need to make 100 items, you think, well, that can't be that difficult. It's incredibly difficult. And it was only... 500 years after it was first posed that algebra was really invented and now we would solve that using algebra and actually it's kind of more fun to solve using algebra. This idea that people were having fun with that problem is really difficult because you have to do it by trial and error and you go completely in the wrong direction. You can't can't do it with number of X, number of Y, number of... Well, that's algebra. That's algebra. And in fact, when algebra in the sort of kind of Arab North Africa and the Middle East was being developed in the sort of 9th, 10th centuries... One of the things that they were developing it to try and do was to solve exactly this question. <laughs> and one of the very first books on algebra is about these hundred birds questions. So you've got this really fun kind of dialogue going between, I say, what is the fun and what's the serious? Because, you know, algebra is like pretty serious. You know, you couldn't have the rest of maths without it. But one of the things that it was designed to do was to solve these, these fun things. And actually, I mean, interestingly, until really... Isaac Newton, you know, scientific revolution, pretty much most maths was recreational. Apart from stuff about, you know, taxes and measuring fields and kind of stuff that you would do as a professional or a trade because that's just like daily life. Sort of mathematics really only got difficult and hard and serious with the scientific revolution because you had all these equations and the world could be described as equations. So you needed lots of mathematicians and scientists to try and understand the world to try and put it together. But before then, math was just like fun problem. They were just like fuzzles. Puzzles? Puzzles to have fun with. So that was, in a way, is, is the sort of the most recreational or most apparently frivolous sort of material, the stuff that's in the direction of pure maths? I mean, is it the sort of more abstract you are, the more... I think that what a good puzzle does is that it dilutes some tiny kind of mathematical idea into a beautifully palatable um, kind of morsel. Now, sometimes to get that morsel across to express it, you need to dress it up like buying a hundred birds at whatever the prices are. But sometimes you can be incredibly abstract about it and just 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 use numbers. I mean, I think that there's one one other puzzle which is of that sort of simultaneous equations genre where you have to basically translate the question in simultaneous equations, which is fantastic, which is the 7-Eleven puzzle, which is you go into the shop and you buy four items and the cashier says, oh, right, that's seven pounds, 11 pence. How funny. And he said, why is it funny? He said, yeah, because how did you get that? He said, well, all I did was that I multiplied the cost of each item together. And then he said, but um, aren't you supposed to add the price of items together? I said, oh, you can do that because the answer is exactly the same. 
And that's the puzzle. So you've got to find out what was the price of the items. In other words, you've got to find four items such that when you multiply them together, they're £7.11, and when you add them to get up, £7.11. And it's amazing that there is a unique solution to that. There are only four possible prices, and it's just, like, fantastic that it's also weirdly on brand. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. But So that's, that's, that's one way. It's not... It's a very abstract puzzle because you need to turn it into equations, but it's a fun story that gets it across. You sweeten the pill with that. Do you think these things are useful as sort of teaching tools? I mean, if someone like Oh, me... amazingly so, amazingly so, because maths suffers from a reputation of being really boring and really dull and a real chore. But when you see a puzzle, you kind of, you just, there's something, you know, you just want to solve it. You It kind of, it's saying, it's teasing you to do it, but also... A good puzzle is something that's it's kind of achievable goal. You know that if you put your mind, you will be able to do it. So you're kind of proving to yourself that you can do something that you maybe didn't think that you could. So it's incredibly satisfying. And also, one of the things that I began to think, looking at all these puzzles, is that why is it, you know, we think that logic is very dry and kind of a bit sort of boring, but there's something about logic that when you're just using logical procedures to work something out, that is incredibly comforting and satisfying. And maybe it's that because the world is so complicated that when you can sort of disappear into this world of things that work, it's, 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 it's incredibly nice. And I think that, you know, Sudoku, for example, there are no Sudokus in this book, um, although I went to Japan and I met the guy who kind of, his company pretty much invented Sudoku and I've got some more of similar-ish puzzles. But most people think, oh, Sudoku, that's not maths. That's totally math. There's nothing that's not maths about it. And the thing that, I mean, I quite enjoy Sudoku. You get a bit bored with it, but I think it's quite fun. And I find it incredibly relaxing because you do have to concentrate. And when you know, you know the little rules that you have to try and find all those things. There is something incredibly comforting about following that process and then and achieving it in the so end. I remember asking a, f- a friend, I think, who's a, who's a mathematician, whether there was a finite number of, or how many, uh, you know, Sudokus were possible. yeah. And he said, actually, that's quite a, it's a trickier problem than it sounds. Yeah, it's a pretty tricky problem, but it has been solved. The thing is, one of the reasons it might be tricky is that you've got the finished grid. And are you trying to say how many possible finished grids are there? That is something that's easier to find out. But then with the actual puzzles, because... There's how many so, possible yeah, and clues so, allow you to complete it. Exactly. And so many of those solutions and um, some of those puzzles will be uninteresting so one that is completely full but with one single cell the mathematically more interesting question which has also been solved which is what is the sudoku with the minimum possible uh, given digits i think it's 17 or 13 or something that's not possible to have a sudoku with less given numbers at the beginning i thought we should probably move on from sudoku yeah. in there aren't any in your book <laughs> i ask you you said you know if you apply yourself you can solve them in the course of researching this did any of the puzzles you came across stump you oh yeah totally i mean i'm not myself a brilliant puzzle solver i think if you were a brilliant puzzle solver you would then produce a book of amazingly complicated puzzles and be completely unable to explain to people like how to solve them I've got a degree in math, math and philosophy, and then I kind of left math for sort of 15, 20 years and sort of came back to it. And I was rusty enough that I had to basically relearn everything, which made me maybe appreciate how you need to write about it to communicate it so people understand it. So this book has all level of puzzles from quite easy to really quite tough. 
but I have made sure that the explanations of how to do it, how to do them, are all, I hope, understandable for the, the general reader, even the really complicated ones, because I think that sometimes the fun is seeing... I mean, Puzzle is like an amazing poem. Like there's, there's one in there which is like far too complicated for me to solve, which is actually devised by Max Newman. So Max Newman is like the father of British computing. He was Alan Turing's mentor. He ran the Newmanry, which was a whole section in Bletchley Park. And when he was in his young 20s, the kind of top genius logician at Cambridge, he submitted this puzzle to um, the New Statesman, as it was. And it's called Caliban's Will. And it's just, it's brilliant. It's fiendish. And I couldn't solve it. But finding the answer and working out how it's solved, it's almost more thrilling to actually kind of go through that process. And I think that each of the puzzles, I've tried to choose them also so that you learn something, that you learn something about a strategy for attacking a puzzle, or you just realise something kind of really interesting about about the world. About I mean, it's maths, but there's a little bit of physics there, so about how the universe works. You've said that you've just divided them into various kind of areas. Is there any sort of way in which they map onto the shape of mathematics itself, or is there a sort of puzzle geography that's slightly different? I think that the geography, if we're talking geography, which is actually quite a good metaphor, is that mathematics is probably like a um, there are some flatlands, <laughs> and then you go up to the, the Himalayas, and the puzzles are pretty much all around the flatlands. And around the flatlands, there's basically geometry, arithmetic, algebra, uh, a few other problem-solving techniques. But pretty soon in mathematics, you get to... Well, well firstly... Anyone will be able to pick up this book and understand all the questions. If it's most mathematics, all of a sudden there are words that you just need to clarify. This is what it means. And the trick of a good puzzle is being able to state it clearly and not be ambiguous in any way or also use a technical word or assume any technical knowledge. And so there is a, there is a kind of... Let's say mathematics is an island with the mountains on it. It's like you can't really climb very high on the mountain with puzzles, but you can get at every creek from every which way. And you can get lots of different types of mathematics, but nothing particularly complicated or abstract. In the course of going through this, you know, as you say, it's a history as well. I mean, have there been some kind of crazy puzzle-obsessed mathematicians who've devoted a lot of time to you know, making yeah, these puzzles? Yeah, I mean, there's um, pretty much every great mathematician has some puzzle that they have looked at or maybe in, in, in invented. So another thing which is interesting, actually, is how British the history of puzzles is. Something that I didn't particularly expect, especially seeing as mathematics is kind of universal language, so to speak. You know, there are other places, like Japan now is like really into puzzles. But historically, so the first great batch of, puzzle, batch of logic mathematic puzzles was Alcuin of York. And this is uh, from 8th century. And some of those puzzles are fantastic and still stand the test of time. You've got Lewis Carroll, obviously, who his puzzles were a bit too difficult for and never as successful as his books. But he is someone who said maths, and I'm a mathematician, can be a lot of fun. But the greatest puzzlesmith in the history, in, in, in my opinion, was this guy called Henry... Ernest Dudney, who his puzzles basically from the 1890s to the 1930s, and he published in lots of different newspapers and magazines, but most 
most kind of famously in Strand magazine, where the most famous puzzle solver of all time, Sherlock Holmes, also made his debut. And some of his puzzles, and I've got quite a few in the, in the book, are absolutely brilliant. And here's a wonderful story because at the time he was quite well known as the world kind of puzzle king. But he was Henry Ernest Dudeney was his name. People called him Ernest. There was another Henry Dudeney who was much more famous, which was Mrs. Henry Dudeney, who was his wife, who was the best-selling novelist of the day. So they had this amazing, this kind of very sort of fascinating life. And actually, she wrote a diary, which was basically incredibly bitchy about they lived in Lewis. And when she died, she said, no one can publish this for 25 years. And then after 25 years, we're going to have to extend it another 25 years. And this diary was recently published, what's about five, six years ago. And it's kind of amazing because you have this sort of fantastic female writer, wife of slightly curmudgeonly grumpy puzzle genius living (laughs) in this life in Lewis, Moaning about the servants, about having to go up to London. Uh, I mean, it's amazing, did amazing find, insight. Did you find him annoying being kind of sequestered in his study with his puzzles, as I imagine he was? Yes, but he said something like, oh, it's difficult being married to a genius, especially when you are one also. <laughs> That's one of her lines. Do you think, I, I mean, are, is the sort of puzzle instinct sort of gendered in a way at all? Have you seen any as- evidence for that? Or well, do boys and girls like these things equally i'm not sure in terms of puzzles but in terms of mathematics what you see is girls are now slightly better than boys up to about a level when there's a massive or maybe even at a level but university certainly girls tend to not want to go into maths and hard sciences and this is sort of reinforcing so once you get to the top there are almost no professor level uh, women and the woman won the fields medal the math biggest prize maths for the first time a few years ago the last batch, um, two years ago. So I think that the cliche would be, yes, boys sort of prefer it because boys are more competitive and there is this feeling that maths is more boysy. But actually, I think a puzzle and the kind of recreational, playful way of maths is gender neutral. And girls are doing slightly better at maths GSE now than boys. And I'm not sure what it is at A-level, but it would be pushing to that way, then I didn't really see it at all. I mean, what you do see, though, is that in history, because there's women doing math and being good at it is quite recent. There are, I mean, that might it, be historically it, determined. To yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a bit embarrassing because, you know, of the main puzzles in this book, I don't think any were written by women. But that's just because... No, so that's quite gentle then, but know, that's historical. Yeah. That, 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 so, I mean, I'm sure, that will, that, I'm sure that will change. Incidentally, do puzzles... I mean, can you copyright a puzzle in the same... Or do they, do they just circulate I hope like not. jokes? I hope <laughs> not. I hope not, because I'll be sued. <laughs> so, yeah, what you... I believe, and I've, <laughs> I hope there are no lawyers listening, um, that you can't copyright a puzzle, but you can copyright the phrasing of a puzzle and so how it's written. So of the puzzles, you know, I've asked permission where I've thought this might be insensitive, but no, I don't think... Because a puzzle, it's like a mathematical idea, and I don't think you can't copyright that. One, one of the most famous logic puzzles there is is called the Zebra Puzzle, or Einstein's Riddle, which first appeared in Life magazine in 1962. And so I wanted to use it, and I thought, because everyone just puts... And this, this is the one, that you've got five houses, and five people live in the houses, they're of different nationalities, the houses are different colours, they all drink one type of beverage, they all have one type of pet... 
and the question is who owns the zebra right and this is quite a well-known puzzle and it's always using different animals or different nationalities and i i found but the logical structure of it same, the same logic yeah. exactly the same and i found i thought well i want to do something about the history of this puzzle because it's interesting that why it's become so widespread so i went and i i found and i got a copy of the original life magazine from 1962 and it's great because the nationality is but also because they all smoke one brand of cigarettes which are these very dated american cigarettes that don't really exist anymore so it's, i thought it'd be really fun to actually publish the original version you know this puzzle is, is so well known that there are kind of books about this puzzle. And so I got in touch with Time Life and said, can I use the original version just because, you know, courtesy, but also just covering my bases. And they said, well, it costs this amount of money. You've got to tell me how many you're doing. And it's got so complicated. And I said, oh, I know well, the reason why everyone uses different things is because no one is because there might be a copyright issue in the actual phrasing but you can change nationalities and no one's going to complain. Yeah. And I suppose the thing to wrap up on is seven ships? So the question was, there's Le Havre in France because it was written by Edouard Lucas, famous French mathematician, and the ships, one ship goes at noon every day from Le Havre to New York, at this, and at the same time a ship comes from New York to Le Havre and they each take seven days. The question is, for a ship leaving today in Le Havre, how many ships coming from New York does it pass before it gets to New York everyone says seven because you think yeah yeah well seven days seven ships but you are forgetting all the ships that have already set off and actually you only pass 13 because once you're at sea you do seven and seven plus one extra for the one that you get there and but let's eliminate the one there and the one before you've set off. And so you see what, basically every 12 hours you'll see a ship coming the other direction. You assume that it's once every 24 hours because you're going once every 24 hours. They were going to come out the other way once every 24 hours and they're setting up sail every day. But actually, it's twice as much as you might think. And that's something that everyone, when thinking about that puzzle straight away, thinks seven doesn't remember, doesn't think about these other ones. And that's quite nice because it's, it's simple to express. It gives you a bit of mathematical insight about how the world works. It does. It also makes you realise that you're never going to be running a logistics company for <laughs> container ships. Um, <laughs> yeah. Alex Bellos, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this, do subscribe to our feed at iTunes. <laughs>